Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Siri, I'm wondering, are women people? I don't understand. Hey, Siri, what do you think? Are women people? I don't have an answer for that. Is there something else I can help with? Hey, Lynn, guess what I did today? Mm, you overthrew the government and put a woman in the White House. No, no, that's on the list for tomorrow. <laughs> but it's related. I was thinking about the story we're telling on this podcast, The Battle for the Ballot, the epic fight for suffrage in the United States, and how the arguments, both for and against, so often came down to one question. Are women people? Why is that even a question? I'm Lynn Sure. I'm Ellen Goodman. And this is She Votes, a podcast about our battle for the ballot. Ellen, we're celebrating one century of the 19th Amendment this summer, but the fight for the right to vote began long before then, and it continues even today. It's so interesting that you went to Siri with that question that so stumped her. I mean, Siri, the font of all wisdom, a female voice. When we started looking for jobs, women's voices were not exactly respected, certainly not to broadcast the news. They were considered too high and squeaky, too unauthoritative. <laughs> Broadcasters were supposed to have deep, masculine voices. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. I'll be back with that story after this message. At this hour, it is mid-afternoon in London. The U.S. artillery fire is ten times greater than the enemy's. They just keep coming back for more. Camlo, Jolin. And that's the way it is. And that's the way it was. Women were not delivering the news. The president of ABC said our voices were not, and I quote, appropriate for reporting crucial events. For hardcore news, the depth and resonance of the male voice are indispensable, unquote. Clearly, we had talked them out of that myth by the time I got to ABC News as a correspondent in 1977. A byline in print wasn't much easier. My first job was at Newsweek in 1963. Women were not allowed to write. Men were the writers. Women were their researchers. I'd gone to college with Peter Benchley, who later wrote Jaws, but when we got to Newsweek, I ended up working for him at a fraction of the salary. And that was legal then. When I got to the Boston Globe a few years later, opinion writing was pretty much divided by sex, too. I mean, there was this tradition that the editorial pages were filled with men writing about politics and foreign affairs. And women, we wrote for the women's page, food and fashion and family. That was the image imposed on women. And we were supposed to stay in our place. It even meant wearing proper clothing. Remember how many women in offices across the country weren't allowed to wear trousers to work? Skirts and dresses only. I always thought it had something to do with legs. <laughs> or maybe who's wearing the pants. Look, 
Men were in power and wanted to hold on to it. That's nothing new. The story of women's suffrage is, above all, a story about power. And one way to retain power is by reducing challengers, women, to body parts, legs, brains, wombs. There was an attitude that was rampant in like the 1870s and 1880s that if women were educated, the blood would drain from their reproductive organs into their brains and they would lose their reproductive capacities. Here's a story on Ellen Du Bois, author of the new book, Suffrage. I'm sitting here and laughing when you're saying that. I mean, that is so outrageous. Well, it was a big deal. And, you know, it was not just the idea of a crazy person. It was pretty common in that period. And uh, one of the first women gynecologists had to engage in a study of women who had college degrees to show that they did not lose their reproductive capacities. Such biology was, of course, bogus but it was so widely accepted, it trapped women in their bodies. This idea that women were nothing more than walking wombs kept many from believing they could or should do anything outside the domestic world. The first real rumblings of suffrage emerged during the mid-1800s, a time of huge social changes. The United States wasn't even 100 years old. In the North, men were moving from farms to factories, with their husbands leaving the home, women were reminded their place was in it, their only place. And if you didn't want to stay there, if you were starting to think about your own rights, you were up against a suffocating new concept. It was called the cult of true womanhood. So the cult of true womanhood is an idea of ideal femininity that emerges in the middle of the 19th century. Historian Mary Chapman, now at the University of British Columbia, has spent decades studying how this stereotype affected women. Women were expected to be pious. They were expected to be sexually pure. They were expected to be submissive to their husbands. And they were also expected to confine themselves to the domestic role. So if we give women the vote, they will leave their homes in order to go to the polls, and they will abandon their children as if the three minutes it takes to vote would destroy the family. Let's just say it. If she votes, she challenges the whole structure of society. In other words, she, we, were undercutting the power of men. But you know, it's funny. To many men and some women at the time, it wasn't seen as confining. It was framed as respect. They were protecting women. They prided themselves on putting the little woman on a big pedestal. But only women who had the means to that pedestal. There was something very exclusive about that cult of true womanhood. Even though we say womanhood, it's pretty clear that it actually applies mostly to white women, women with homes, women in marriages. Yeah, remember, the whole cult thing emerged during slavery. Slaves weren't even seen as people. They only counted as three-fifths of a human being under our Constitution. So an enslaved woman, even when she was freed, was never going to be up on that pedestal. She was perceived as sexually promiscuous 
and she did not fit the image of a woman. Betty Collier Thomas of Temple University is one of the first scholars to write about black women in the suffrage movement. And you look at some of those pictures of enslaved black women, they don't look like delicate women. And so black women were considered to be unsexed. In other words, black women just didn't fit the ideology of what a woman was supposed to be. That's what Sojourner Truth, formerly enslaved, a celebrated orator, was speaking out against when she delivered her famous Ain't I a Woman speech in 1851 at a women's rights convention. Listen to this performance by Maya Angelou. That man over there says that women need to be helped into carriages and lifted over ditches and given the best place wherever. Nobody helps me into carriages nor over the muddy patches or gives me any best place. And ain't I a woman? Look at me. I have this is the iconic version of the speech heard and taught widely today, but Nell Painter, Sojourner Truth's biographer, didn't want to hear it. No, I can't stand it. Her research says there's another more accurate account. In it, Sojourner spoke, not with the Southern accent that became a stereotype, but with the New York Dutch accent of her community, and without the slangy ain't. Nell says the popular version strips Sojourner of her humanness, she sort of makes a magic Negro out of Sojourner Truth. What's a magic Negro? A magic Negro is a black person who exists to save white people. And that person's role in life is saving white people, not living a life of that person's own. So it's a fantasy. It's a white fantasy of what a yes. black person is. Yes, yes. Just as the cult of true womanhood confined white women to a stereotype, black women were held to one too. Still, Nell believes Sojourner's point, accurately reported or not, expanded the definition of womanhood. Her motif is that poor women, working women, deserve rights as well as better educated women. So the Sojourner truth that we know is a symbol who is useful in an era in which there is a movement for women's rights and an era in which there is a movement for black rights. We need her as the pivot between those two to remind us that among the blacks are women and among the women there are blacks. Sojourner publicly called out the image of women as domestic goddesses, the weaker sex, protected on a pedestal, at a time when black women were fighting for both womanhood and personhood. Historian Ellen Du Bois agrees. She was redefining womanhood. She was saying, I am a woman. Enslaved women are women. That means women work hard. That means they're abused. That means they're raped. And that is what it means to be a woman, not to uh, live in a a little house in, a, in a, a little cottage in a little town with uh, a loving husband and beautiful children. So I think she was challenging, not just saying, let me in as a black woman, but saying, 
look at me as a woman and know that what it means to be a woman is different than what you think. Redefine your image of what a woman is. Yes, exactly. Womanhood includes me, and that means womanhood is different than what you think. In this ongoing debate of whether women were people and whether all people deserve the vote, there was an even more dramatic moment during one of Truth's other lecture tours, at a time when the definition of womanhood was a critical part of the anti-suffrage rhetoric, Sojourner's own womanhood was challenged. Nell Painter. It would have been in the 1850s. And uh, according to the most common reports, this was a mixed group, that is to say men as well as women. And some of the men said, oh, you're not really a woman. And she said, well, yeah. And then she showed her breast to show that she was a woman. So much of the opposition to women's suffrage was anchored to the notion that those who wanted their rights were manly women. Here's that word again, de-sexed. Men were afraid that women who voted would desert their domestic roles. They were afraid we wouldn't have babies, or we wouldn't take care of the babies, or we wouldn't take care of the men themselves. Men were afraid that their women wouldn't wash their long johns or cook their supper. And it wasn't just food and pots and pans. It was also the idea that women wouldn't love, honor, and most of all, obey their husbands, as it said in the wedding vows. There's that repressive cult of so-called true womanhood again. Betty Collier-Thomas says even though the majority of black women were excluded from it, they too felt the myth of the patriarchy. Because when black men were freed from slavery, they often defined their relationships with black women in terms of white men's patriarchy. They were fighting for equality to be seen as men and the equal of white men fighting for what they call their manhood rights. And at first I pondered over and over again as I read this, what are they talking about, their manhood rights? Their manhood rights then deal with the right to be seen, not only seen as men, the equal of all men, but also their right to patriarchy. And, and to gain acceptance then from white men. They weren't comparing themselves as equals to women. Uh, no man was in that time period. It was to other men. They were about power too, the power that men had. The idea that women were the second sex, the inferior sex, came from the Bible as well as biology. One minister wrote in 1884, this whole movement for female suffrage is, at least in its motive and beginning, a rebellion against the divinely ordained position and duties of woman. So from the very beginning, women were up against the Bible, they were up against biology, they were up against the vision of grumpy, hungry husbands, they were up against every powerful platform including the New York Times. One of its many editorials opposing suffrage put it this way, women, as they are, are not fit to vote. The New York Times said that? Oh, Lord, no. (laughs) 
fashion changes. True style doesn't. Even so, your timeless look can use a pick-me-up every once in a while. Get help from someone who gets what you're going for without ever leaving home with a Stitch Fix styling expert. Stitch Fix is a personal styling company that brings you the world of fashion and style. It's a completely different and fun way to find clothes that you will love that are all about you every time. You pay a $20 styling fee for each fix, which is credited towards anything you keep. Schedule at any time. There's no subscription required. Plus, shipping, returns, exchanges, easy and free. Stitch Fix does the hard work for you. They'll deliver great looks personalized just for you and your colors, your styles, your budget. Get started today at stitchfix.com slash shevotes and you'll get 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. That's stitchfix.com slash shevotes for 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. stitchfix.com slash shevotes. Having good, reliable information so you can understand what's going on around you has never been more important. That's why we want to tell you about Start Here, the daily podcast from ABC News. Every weekday, Start Here breaks down the latest headlines in just 20 minutes with smart, straightforward reporting and analysis from award-winning journalists and experts you can trust to get it right. Always credible, always solid. Start here, the daily podcast from ABC News. Listen every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. By the early 20th century, women had been battling for the ballot for more than 50 years. A lot had changed for American women. Their place now included offices and lecture halls and factories but they still didn't have the vote. And long after Sojourner Truth helped expand the definition of womanhood, they still faced a huge cohort of society that said, we the people did not include female people. And with encouragement from women battling for the same rights overseas, this final generation of suffragists got louder and bolder. They put their bodies on the front lines. They escalated their demand for the vote. They marched and organized and chained themselves to the White House gates. They took on the opposition, as Samantha B might say, full frontal. At the same time, other suffragists raised their voices in a different way. One woman was wonderfully adept holding up a mirror to anti-suffragists and reflecting the absurdity of their arguments back at them. She was a newspaper columnist, and she took them on on their own terms. She helped win both the arguments and the vote. I think that's why I fell in love with her. Her name was Alice Dewar Miller. She's barely known today, but in her time in the early 20th century, she was a weekly columnist for the liberal New York Tribune with a following of over 100,000 readers. I love her wit and her takedowns of the high and mighty politicians and anti-suffragists. She created absurd lists like Why We Oppose Pockets for Women. And she wrote a poem called On Not Believing All You Hear. And Ellen, you know that question you asked Siri? Well, Alice Dewar Miller actually called her weekly column Are Women People? 
Wallace was born a generation after the suffrage campaign got underway. She began writing her column in 1914 to challenge the notion that women were too, ah, what's the word? Um, not men. <laughs> Historian Mary Chapman has spent years learning about Alice. You know, most people have heard of Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, but not many people have heard of my new heroine, Alice Dewar Miller. <laughs> Why did she call her column, Our Women People? When Woodrow Wilson was campaigning for president in 1912, he published a set of campaign speeches called The New Freedom. So he really believed democracy was for the people. And he kept referring in these speeches to the people and how central they were to American democracy. And the political life of the people and citizens for whom we hold the government duty power is the great task service. of protecting our people and our resources and of keeping open only the emancipation the people, the free doors of and heartening of the vital energies of all the people bring the government back to the people. So when she names her column, Are Women People? It's because she knows he's actually not speaking about women. He's only referring to men, even white men, or even middle-class white men. Pretty bold. <laughs> I love the idea of a woman talking back sarcastically to the president of the United States, especially Woodrow Wilson, who claimed to be this great Democrat and progressive, and still he dragged his heels about supporting women's right to vote. Talk about hypocrisy. She wasn't shy about calling him out. She probably felt comfortable doing that because she was so well-connected. Alice was born wealthy, but she learned the hard way that women couldn't stay on the pedestal forever. When her father lost his money in a bank crisis, she started writing to send herself through college. When her husband's business failed, she earned money to support the family. Her talent and her connections gave her unusual access in those days. She got a gig at the New York Tribune when liberals there were coming around to supporting women's suffrage and also seeking female readers. Her columns, almost all written as poems, were as famous and as retweeted, well, quoted, as today's late-night talk show hosts. I think of her as an early precursor to The Daily Show and how Jon Stewart basically would begin the show by uh, showing a clip of something someone had said and then he would skewer it. That was her tactic a uh, hundred years earlier. I kinda, he said, she said, he was always the annoying authority and she always had the last word. For example, President Wilson's vice president, Thomas Marshall, came out against the vote for women saying, quote, my wife is against suffrage and that settles it for me. So she says, my wife dislikes the income tax and so I cannot pay it. She thinks that golf all interest lacks, so now I never play it. Then Senator Edwin Yates Webb of North Carolina said, I am opposed to woman suffrage, but I am not opposed to woman. And Alice answers, Oh, women, have you heard the news of charity and grace? Look, look, 
how joy and gratitude are beaming in my face, for Mr. Webb is not opposed to woman in her place. One of the things they're pushing back against is this stereotype that women are the sentimental feeling sex and men are the rational, logical sex. So did that drive her nuts? I think everything about anti-suffrage rhetoric drove her nuts because it was all based on completely illogical, hackneyed, traditional, unquestioned ideas about women that had no basis in reality. And they were still protesting the tired old reliance on anatomy. Um, there was a real sense that women's biology made them incapable of exercising reason and that reason was foundational to participation in the democratic sphere. So if you make that argument, then women just by nature, by biology, should be excluded from voting. At the same time Alice was writing in the Tribune, a prominent founder of the Harvard School of Public Health was writing in the New York Times. We must not forget pregnancy and lactation, both of which are a great strain on a mother's vitality. Any further strain, like the responsibilities of suffrage, is bound to be harmful to both mother and child. Women were up against all kinds of preconceptions about what they could and couldn't do, and she makes them explicit in her poetry. So here's why I like Alice so much the way she twisted the things men said against women to make fun of the men themselves. This one's not a poem, it's a list. Why we oppose votes for men. And my favorite is reason number five. Ready? Men are too emotional to vote. Their conduct at baseball games and political conventions shows this, while their innate tendency to appeal to force renders them peculiarly unfit for the task of government. She's, she's really showing how, how emotional men can be, even as they are very attached to this stereotype that they, that they are not emotional, that they behave with a cool head in every situation. Women loved Alice because she spoke for them while speaking to men. The thing that's hard for us to appreciate is the primary audience for the pro-suffrage arguments at this point in time uh, was the male electorate because they were going to be the people who would vote on the referenda that individual states were hosting. And they were the legislators who were going to be in Congress, in the Houses of Representatives that would endorse, would ratify suffrage. So men are the people who need to be convinced. Ellen, I can't help noticing the similarities between Alice and you as columnists. I mean, she stared down the opposition by being funny about a serious subject. So did you. In the 1970s, we faced similar opposition when we were out there discovering the new women's movement, and you figured out how to defuse it. You know, I used to think 
The most flattering thing about your columns was that you won a Pulitzer Prize, and, and that really is extraordinary. But I think what I really admired was that so many women put your column up on their refrigerator doors. That was the real place of honor. At last, someone was saying what they were thinking. I love that too. But the truth also is about the tenacity of the old ideas. More than a half a century after Alice skewered them, we were still finding the limits on what women can do. I remember how biology was still being used against us in the beginning of our careers. I was supposed to leave my job when my pregnancy started to show. <laughs> I actually didn't leave till a week before Katie was born. Yeah, we definitely got some traction in the biology battle. After being told our voices weren't right for TV, an awful lot of us wound up on the air. But we still see it today. Look at how we evaluate our female politicians. For a while, I was keeping a running list of these attacks, starting back in 2016 when Glenn Beck compared Hillary's voice to an ice pick in the ear. Oh God, yeah. And Elizabeth Warren had her voice criticized as being both too schoolmarmish and too maternal. We started out with six women running for president, and we still had people challenging their voices, their clothes. They didn't smile enough. They weren't likable. The likability factor. And I also think she has a likability issue. It starts with likability, right? It definitely starts with likability. Oh my God, the likability thing. And electability. That's what Elizabeth Warren was accused of not having. When in fact, electability is just code for accepting sexism as a reality. Here's how Warren put it after dropping out of the presidential race. Uh, if you say, yeah, there was sexism in this race, everyone says, whiner. And if you say, no, there was no sexism, about a bazillion women think, what planet do you live on? Um, oh, of course there's sexism. Always has been. Are women people, even if they're not likable? Seriously? This question is a key part of the story of women's struggle for suffrage. We'll be confronting it again and again as we celebrate the anniversary. The answers are pretty revealing, too. Like that non-answer from Siri when I asked her if women were people? I don't understand. She said she didn't understand the question. Really? So I tried another contemporary source. I asked Google, are women people? And guess what? Google led me directly to Alice Stewart Miller. Karma. So Alice is the arbiter. She gets the last word on this subject today. Another poem. This one's my favorite. It's a tiny conversation between a little girl and her mom. I'll start. I'm the little girl. Mother, what is a feminist? A feminist, my daughter, is any woman now who cares to think about her own affairs. As, as men, men don't, don't think, think she ought to. Okay. <laughs> that question, are women people, takes on even deeper meaning when we turn to the origins of suffrage and its roots in the struggle against slavery. Next time on She Votes. She Votes is produced by Maddie Foley, Edie Allard, and the team at Wonder Media Network. To learn more about our battle for the ballot, you can follow us on Twitter at WMN Media, on Instagram at WMN.media, or on our website, SheVotesPodcast.com. Special thanks to Soren Kissel. Thank you for listening.
Hey, Ellen, you and I have been covering politics all of our professional lives, and here we are suddenly in the midst of what's probably the hottest political year ever, and, well, we're doing our podcast, but we're not in the day-to-day political thing. What do you think? I think, phew. (laughs) I mean, it can be so depressing, particularly right now, and so full of conflict, and you don't feel like people are really listening to each other. I know, but you know, as hard as it is to engage in political conversations, it is important, we know that, politics, it impacts so many aspects of our lives. That's why we like Pantsuit Politics. It's a nationally acclaimed podcast dedicated to having political conversations that inspire rather than deplete us. The hosts, Sarah and Beth, are Kentucky moms, lawyers, friends, who create an informative, grace-filled space that looks at politics holistically. They blend hard facts with important social and cultural undercurrents, so, so you don't miss the big picture. Over the next two weeks, they'll be diving into their How to Be a Citizen Civic series, where they'll break down the complexities of our unstable political system. They'll answer the most basic questions about our government, from how the three branches work, to the difference between primary and general elections, and the philosophy behind the Federalist Papers. Their goal is to answer these two important questions. How did we get here? And how do I get involved? So listen to Pantsuit Politics every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts.